Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Vatican has been the center of Christianity since the foundation of St. Peter's Basilica by Constantine in the 4th century. Vatican City exists as its own independent city-state covering just over 100 acres, encircled by a two-mile border with Italy. But did you know that beneath the Vatican lies a vast secret archive housed in a fortress-like library, which contains hundreds of thousands of historical documents dating back through the millennia? Getting into the archives is extremely difficult, and only a select few scholars who go through a lengthy vetting process ever get to take a peek at what lies within the Vatican archives. All this extreme secrecy has led to wild speculation as to just what the Vatican might be hiding. Everything from the existence of aliens to a bunch of secrets about Jesus Christ the Vatican doesn't want you to know, to a particular invention that some people claim is the first functioning time machine. In 2002, a book by Vatican priest Father Francois Brun made a startling claim that the Vatican was hiding a device known as the chronovisor, which was supposedly a sort of television equipped with the most unique streaming service ever. According to the book, this device could allow the viewer to look back at any moment in history. Father Brun claimed that the chronovisor was created by a Benedictine monk named Father Pellegrino Ernetti. Father Ernetti kept the device secret until the 1960s when he confided in Brune, telling him about all the amazing events from history he had seen with his own eyes. Father Ernetti allegedly worked with a dozen scientists, including famed physicist Enrico Fermi and former Nazi scientist Werner von Braun to build the chronovisor. According to reports, the chronovisor resembled an old-school television. It was built with a cathode ray monitor and a specialized antenna forged out of unique metals that were able to attract light and sound from every wavelength. Ernetti was able to tune the chronovisor in such a way that the device could pick up a residual signal from past events, allowing the viewer to observe any event in history that ever happened. This included the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, as far as inventions go, this would be a game-changer for the Catholic Church because they could then provide first-hand evidence that everything in the Bible actually happened as described. In Brun's 2002 book, Le Nouveau Mystère du Vatican, the priest tells how he met Father Ernetti during a boat ride in the early 1960s and how the two men instantly struck up a friendship. Brune and Ernetti shared a common interest in the history of ancient languages. And as the men got to know each other better, they also came to realize they shared an interest in science as well. Being as they were both members of the clergy, their conversation inevitably drifted back to the Bible. Brune told Ernetti about his frustrations that there were several parts of the Bible that were open to interpretation. 
That was when Ernetti confided in him that he had built a device that could settle any questions anyone ever had about the scriptures once and for all. Ernetti told Brun that he had worked with a group of scientists, including Werner von Braun, the Nazi rocket scientist who spearheaded the American mission to the moon, to build a device that could look through time. Ernetti explained that his device could capture echoes of events from long ago that were, as he put it, still floating in space, and he claimed to have personally witnessed some remarkable things. Ernetti said that he had once watched a speech by the Roman philosopher Cicero that he gave to the Senate in 63 BC. He also said that he had seen other historic events that were pivotal to the Catholic Church, including the founding of Rome, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and most importantly, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. On May 2, 1972, an Italian magazine published an article about Father Ernetti's chronovisor that even included a photograph that Ernetti said was a real image of Jesus Christ on the cross. The article also mentioned that Ernetti had in his possession an actual photograph taken of the Last Supper that he kept as a souvenir. Right up until his death in 1994, Father Ernetti maintained that the chronovisor had been kept hidden away deep in the Vatican archives in order to prevent it from falling into the wrong hands. It's interesting to point out that although many people remain highly skeptical of the chronovisor, in 1988, the Vatican issued an official decree stating that anyone caught using an instrument of such characteristics would be excommunicated. Shortly before his death, Ernetti wrote an open letter adamantly stating the chronovisor was real and that Pope Pius XII had forbidden anyone from revealing any details about the device to the world. But as exciting as the idea of a device that could look through time sounds, there doesn't seem to be any real evidence that it actually exists. For starters, the science behind it sounds extremely dodgy. Nor is there any evidence that Fermi, Von Braun, and a bunch of other noted scientists ever worked together on any top-secret project. Skeptics have also pointed out that the alleged photograph of Jesus taken using the chronovisor appears to be an image of a statue of Jesus taken in an Umbrian church. Although another magazine suggested that the photograph might have been a reversed image of Jesus taken from a postcard. An article from 1996 that ran in Paracelsus magazine further questioned the validity of Father Ernetti's chronovisor. The article scoffed at the scientific basis for such a device and said that if Ernetti was so adamant the chronovisor really existed, then why couldn't he produce any detailed instructions on how to build it? The article also went on to point out how the story of the chronovisor bore a striking similarity to one described in a sci-fi novella from 1947. There have even been further rumors that despite writing a letter claiming the device was real earlier in his life, Father Pellegrino Ernetti finally admitted on his deathbed that he had made the whole story up. But although the story of the chronovisor probably isn't real, it isn't the only such tale of a modern device that could allegedly pierce the veil of time. There is an author named Ken Webster who wrote a book claiming that during the 1980s he began receiving mysterious messages through his old IBM computer. Not only was this strange because this came at a time before the internet existed, but also because Ken Webster claimed that the person he began communicating with lived in the 16th century. I'm Nate Hale, currently broadcasting from within a blue police box that's way bigger on the inside, and this is The Conspirators.
1989, a teacher named Ken Webster published a book titled The Vertical Plane, in which he made the remarkable claim that a few years earlier, when he was living in the peaceful English village of Duddleston, he began receiving messages through his computer from a man who lived in a house that existed on the same site in 1546. Since then, the story of the Duddleston messages continues to fascinate people to this day. You can still find countless web sleuths, Facebook pages, Reddit threads, and of course the occasional podcast dedicated to getting to the bottom of the mystery. It all began in the fall of 1984 in the tiny village of Duddleston in Chester, England, fairly close to the border with Wales. That was when an economics teacher named Ken Webster began renovating a dilapidated 18th century cottage. Ken had recently moved into the cottage along with his 19-year-old girlfriend, Debbie, and another roommate, Nicola Bagley. Early on, the trio began to experience strange things inside the home. One day, they found a set of six-toed footprints imprinted in the dust leading up the walls between the bathroom and the kitchen. At first, the trio thought the footprints must be some sort of prank, so one of them grabbed a paintbrush and a gallon of paint and painted over them. But then the following day, the three roommates woke up only to find the footprints had returned. Over the next few days, more peculiar things occurred. On several occasions, the three of them would experience cold spots throughout the cottage and gusts of wind strong enough to lift a newspaper into the air. They would see shadows moving out of the corner of their eye. They found more footprints in the dust on the floor, and they often had the distinct feeling that there was someone else in the room with them. On another occasion, they found tins of cat food stacked neatly in a pyramid. This was followed by other times when they would walk into a room only to find stacks of boxes or furniture, sometimes reaching almost to the ceiling. To Ken Webster and his two roommates, it seemed like they had a poltergeist in the cottage. That is, until things got even weirder. One day in 1984, Ken brought home a BBC microcomputer from his school for his guest, Nicola Bagley. Nicola wanted to be in show business, and she asked Ken if she could borrow it to use the word processor to write some comedy sketches. One day, they left the computer switched on in the kitchen, and they left the cottage to take a short stroll to the local pub. But when they returned, the three of them were surprised to see a pulsating green light emanating from the kitchen window. When they went back into the kitchen, they found a mysterious message that appeared on the screen. The first message Ken Webster said they received was a rather ominous-sounding poem. True are the nightmare of a person that fears. Safe are the bodies of the silent world. Turn, pretty flower, towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. But the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Get out your bricks. Pussycat, pussycat, went to London to seek fame and fortune. Faith must not be lost, for this shall be your redeemer. The message was signed, L.W. At first, Ken was convinced that, like the mysterious footprints in the dust, this had to be another prank. Most likely one perpetrated by either his girlfriend, Debbie, or their house guest, Nicola considering they were the only other people with access to the cottage. But then a few days later, Ken discovered a mysterious file that had been saved on the computer that was named R-E-A-T-E. -E. Ken opened it, and was surprised to realize it was a message written in what appeared to be early modern English. I write on behalf of many, what strange words thou speak, although I must confess that I hath also been ill-schooled. Sometimes methinks alterations are somewhat bearful for... They break many asleep in mine bed. Thou art godly man who hath fanciful women who dwell in mine home. 
I hath not want to affray, for only mine hath-witted antic has ripped a twain mine bound hath. I've been wreathed a night. I hath seen many alterations to my house, and thou home. Tis a fitting place with lights which the devil maketh, and costly things that only mine friend Edmund Gray can afford, or the king himself. Twas a great crime to hath bribed mine house. Signed, L.W. Now, just to let you know, I cleaned up the grammar a little bit here, but you get the idea. Whoever was writing these messages were doing so in Old English, and not particularly well either. There were numerous misspellings, and the messages were often difficult to read. But whoever L.W. was, he was basically saying that the house Ken and his girlfriend were living in was his, and that they were stealing it. And what's more, the mysterious message writer didn't like it. Ken wasn't sure what to make of the messages. He was still convinced that they must be a prank. But, if it was a prank, Ken decided he was willing to play along. Because eventually, Ken got to wonder what would happen if he typed a reply. So he did. Ken left the room, and sometime later, when he returned, the mysterious L.W. had answered him. Over time, L.W. would reveal that his full name was Lucas Wayman and that he was currently living in a house on the site of Meadow Cottage sometime between 1543 and 1547, during the reign of King Henry VIII. Lucas said he was a farmer and kept livestock around his home. He said that he had been married, but his wife and son had been killed in a plague in 1517. He also said that he once studied at Bracenose College at Oxford University, where he had met the famous Dutch philosopher Erasmus on three occasions. Lucas also revealed that the way he was able to communicate with Ken was by using what he described as a, quote, box of lights that had magically appeared in his home. The two men began conversing back and forth like that, and as the messages continued, it also became clear that Lucas could somehow see and hear some of what was going on inside Meadow Cottage in the present day. For example, he was able to comment on objects and photographs that Ken left out near the computer. He once mentioned a photograph of a Jaguar car that Ken Webster had set out, telling Webster that he thought his cart looked crude and required a horse or it wouldn't be able to go very far. Around the same time, Ken's girlfriend Debbie began claiming she was having vivid dreams of interacting with Lucas, and that sometimes she would hear strange tapping noises around her. Once in a while, she would feel her hair being pulled or having the overwhelming sense of being watched while she was home alone. Debbie began doing her own research on the land the cottage sat on, and she came across a reference in some paranormal books claiming the cottage sat smack dab on top of what was called a ley line. Ley lines are supposed invisible lines crisscrossing the globe where mystical energy travels sort of like electricity through power cables. As time went on, Ken learned that Lucas Wayman was also able to pass messages to the future on scraps of paper that appeared in 1985 at the cottage. Keep in mind, these weren't scraps of medieval parchment that Lucas wrote on in 1546 that stayed in the house until 1985. But rather, these were clean sheets of paper in the present day that, if left out near the computer, would suddenly have handwritten notes on them, written in Old English in a fanciful script. Ken took some of the messages he received on the computer back to the school he worked at and showed them around. Most of the people he showed them to thought they were amusing, but clearly just some sort of prank. Then he showed them to a friend and fellow teacher named Peter Trinder, who had a background in the study of medieval English. Trinder took a look at them and he thought they were written in authentic dialects of early modern English from the Tudor period. 
Trinder told Ken that if they were a hoax, then they were a really good one, because whoever was writing the messages appeared to have a keen understanding of Old English words and phrases that most people in the modern era wouldn't know. The events took an even more dramatic turn when one day Lucas Wayneman stopped writing and another person who only identified himself as John took up conversing with Webster instead. This mysterious man named John told Webster that he was a friend of Lucas's, and he was writing to inform him that Lucas had been arrested by the local sheriff, Sir Thomas Falshurst, on charges of witchcraft because he'd been discovered communicating through the box of lights. Eventually, Lucas was released and placed under house arrest. Despite the charges of witchcraft against him, Lucas kept communicating with Ken Webster for several more months. Lucas told Ken he was terrified of what the authorities would do to him, but nonetheless he continued to send messages both through the box of lights, as he called it, and through the little scraps of paper that turned up inside the cottage in 1985. As Ken and Lucas's friendship deepened, Lucas eventually made a couple of bombshell admissions that changed everything Ken thought he knew. For starters, Lucas told Ken that he had been lying about his real name, and that he wasn't actually Lucas Wayneman. His real name, he said, was Thomas Howarden. But that's not the biggest revelation that Lucas slash Thomas made. No, that was when during one exchange between the two men, Lucas, a.k.a. Thomas, expressed surprise at hearing that Ken was living in 1985. That's because he thought Ken was living in the same year as the person who gave Lucas the box of lights. And that person came from the year 2109. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucas told Ken that the mysterious man appeared to him one night as he stepped out of a glowing light emanating in front of his fireplace. The man told him not to be afraid, and before he left, he gave him the box of lights he used to communicate with Ken. This was someone Lucas simply referred to as The One. Upon hearing this, Ken realized that if there really was someone else involved in this strange mystery, then he figured that this mysterious third party from the future was most likely monitoring Ken and Lucas's communications. So Ken decided to send him a message. One day on the BBC Micro, Ken typed a simple message, calling 2109. It wasn't long after that when 2109 answered back. The messages from the mysterious individual Ken called 2109 are sometimes just as difficult to decipher as the ones written by Lucas in Old English. For example, one of these messages read as follows. The eyes are open, yet nothing do you see. The gray, retarding mass is your convict. Bailey alone sits in the dark, waiting for sentences to be passed, and demanding through the eyes of the blind, unspoken questions to answers of ethereal kind. The soul, he is the traveler. Chain nor bar can hold him to frail flesh. Here is the ruler of time and space. Here is your God. Another message from 2109 that was much easier to decipher told Ken, Debbie, and Nicola that he would explain everything if they asked, but in doing so it would dramatically alter events in a way that would harm the timeline, and more importantly, their destiny. The message went on to read, Try to understand that you three have a purpose that shall in your lifetime change the face of history. We, 2109, must not affect your thoughts directly, but give you some sort of guidance that will allow room for your own destiny. 
All we can say is that we are all part of the same God, whatever he is. The next thing Ken did was try to have his friend Peter Trinder take a look at the messages from 2109. But 2109 didn't like this, and he wrote Ken a warning message that he needed to stop because he was endangering the mission they were on. As all this was going on, the weird poltergeist-like activity only increased in the house. The roommates could hear footsteps in the cottage throughout the night. They continued to find furniture and boxes stacked up in rooms. Sometimes they would encounter cold spots that were so chilly they could see their breath in the air. Not only did they find messages scrawled on pieces of paper, but they would also sometimes find messages written in chalk on the stone walls, including Lucas's name. This all proved to be too much for the trio. Nick moved out, and Debbie actually rented another room in the village just so she and Ken could get some sleep. But Ken and Debbie still refused to give up the cottage entirely, because by now they were hooked on solving this mystery. Ken also realized that he had another mission as well, namely, to save Lucas's life. Remember that Lucas Wayneman was still being accused of witchcraft, so Ken began digging through history books looking for anything he could find that could help save Lucas from being executed as a witch. Ken told Lucas a few things that he told him to relate to the sheriff in order to explain everything away, but the sheriff was unmoved, and he still wanted to put Lucas on trial. Then things grew even stranger when the sheriff himself, Sir Thomas Falshurst, started using the light box to communicate with Ken Webster. He affirmed to Ken that the year he was living in was actually 1546. Lucas also continued to send messages. He later apologized to Ken for misleading him about his real name. He also told Ken that he was an educated man who had been the dean of Brastos College before being expelled in 1538 for refusing to denounce the Pope. It was at this point, though, that Lucas said his final goodbye to Ken Webster. He told him that he was planning on returning to Bracenose College to see if he could get his old job back. He said that he would write a book about his experiences in the hope that Ken would one day read it in 1985. Now, if anyone ever did find such a book, then it would pretty much prove everything Ken Webster claimed is true, and would be pretty difficult to refute. But alas, no such book has ever been found. At least not yet. 2109's final message to Ken, which came shortly after Lucas supposedly rode off into the sunset, thanked Ken for his participation in their experiment. 2109 also told Ken that Thomas Howardin did indeed write his book about his relationship with Ken and the Box of Lights, and that one day soon during Ken's timeline the book would be found, confirming everything to be true. But although as of this recording the book still hasn't been found, that isn't to say there isn't some evidence that Ken Webster was actually telling the truth about everything. After Ken received his final message on the BBC Micro, he began doing some more research and he learned that a man named Thomas Howarden was made a vicar of Barrington Parva Parish in Gloucestershire in 1551, where he remained until 1554. He also learned that there really was a sheriff named Sir Thomas Falshurst, who lived around the mid-1500s, although the spelling of the man's name was slightly different. Webster also learned from an assistant librarian at Bracenose College that the name Thomas Howarden does appear in the university's records from the 1500s, although the records didn't specifically mention if the man was the dean or not. On top of all that, at one point Lucas, aka Thomas, gave Ken a list of books to check at the college to confirm his story. The librarian examined the school's library and found that all the books listed did indeed exist and would have been around during the mid-16th century. These things do seem to help confirm some of the elements of Webster's story, 
Although some accounts you'll read have also mentioned that the librarian also learned that some unnamed individual had recently looked up the very same books he did. Now, we don't know if that mysterious individual was Ken Webster or not. Although, if the story is true, he would be the most likely suspect. The question remains, though, did Ken Webster find out all these things about the 16th century before or after he began conversing with the mysterious man he knew as Lucas Wayman? Initially, although the messages from Lucas stopped, Ken did claim that he received a few more messages from 2109, but eventually those ceased as well. While Ken was doing his research, he invited a group from the Society for Psychical Research, one of the oldest known groups of paranormal investigators in existence, to come to the cottage and investigate the strange goings-on. The SBR sent a pair of researchers named John Bucknell and Dave Welch to investigate. The SBR was skeptical of the story from the get-go, and they didn't seem to express as much interest in the messages from Lucas in the 16th century as they did the ones from 2109. According to Ken, the researchers from the SPR proposed a test in which they would send a series of 10 questions to 2109 that Ken and Debbie wouldn't be present to see. Much to their surprise, the men from the SPR received a response. It went like this. David, John. David, you interfere with communication. Next time you decide to perform your little experiment, you must be clear from here. We suggest you try someone else to sit with Debbie. Yes, we are what you would call a tachyon universe, but your understanding is incorrect. We ask nothing more of you than to carry on as you would prefer. We will have John present if given choice, or you may bring another as mentioned. No, it is no concern to us that it is not proved. We will give you a plotting of a star next time. We move at a speed so that we cover every point in your time and universe. We have no form. We feed off a heat energy that you have not heard of. The message was signed, 2109. The SBR investigators didn't have a good explanation how, if this was a hoax, Ken and Debbie could have possibly crafted a reply to their secret questions. They speculated that perhaps there was a hidden microphone in the kitchen, but since they didn't talk about the questions out loud, the only way this would work is if Ken and Debbie were able to overhear the clicking of the particular keystrokes and deduce the words they typed. Which is completely ridiculous, of course. The researchers from the SPR weren't the only ones Ken claimed had witnessed the mysterious messages appearing on the BBC microcomputer. And all of these witnesses were people you would tend to think of as trustworthy. Another teacher from Ken's school named Frank Davis was present when the first message appeared from the man calling himself John, who told Ken that Lucas Wayman had been arrested for witchcraft. Davis claimed to have felt one of the strange cold spots in the kitchen right before leaving the room, only to return a short while later when the message from John appeared. Peter Trinder had a degree in English from Oxford University. He was the first person to examine the Dodleston messages. He came away convinced that Luke's manner of writing revealed he was from the southwest of England in the 1500s, which Trinder thought might possibly tie him to Gloucestershire, where Ken Webster later learned that a man named Thomas Howarden became a vicar. In 1996, a more qualified expert than Trinder, Dr. Laura Wright of Cambridge University, studied the Dodleston messages and she came away unimpressed. She said that the way Lucas put together his verbs was different from the way people living in the region in the 1500s would have done so at the time. There were other historical inaccuracies as well that convinced Dr. Wright that the messages were simply a hoax. In fact, she didn't think the messages resembled 16th century English at all. 
On top of all that, the BBC ran samples of the text from both Lucas Wayman and 2109 through a computer program that compared them with passages written by Ken Webster himself. The results came back that all three samples had numerous similarities in both style and grammar, which suggested they had all been written by the same person. So does all this confirm that the Dodelson messages were just a hoax perpetrated by Ken? Perhaps. We have to consider the things we know. Lucas claimed that his wife and child died in a plague in 1517, although it's unclear where this mysterious plague would have occurred. But to be fair, plagues weren't exactly uncommon back in the 16th century, so this can't be discounted entirely. But using this year as a baseline to determine his age, if you were to estimate that Lucas would have been at least 20 in 1517, then that would mean he was born around 1495. This means he would have been dean at Bracenose College in 1538, placing his age at that time to be about 43. This means that by the time he would have left Dodleston, he would have been around 52 years old. This actually would all seem to then line up with him being the same Thomas Howardin who was a vicar in Barrington Parva in 1551. That Thomas Howardin was 56 at the time, and was 59 when he left there in 1554. But at the same time, Lucas, a.k.a. Thomas, also said that he got his degree at Jesus College, which didn't actually exist until 1571. In his first few messages, Lucas told Ken he had been ill-schooled, yet by the time he was signing off for the last time, he was telling Ken that he was an educated man who had attended a college that hadn't been built yet. It should also be pointed out that Lucas told Webster that he was leaving Dodleston and would no longer be communicating with him right at the same time that Webster got a new job that would have been much more demanding on his time. So was this just a coincidence, or did it point to the fact that Ken and his girlfriend Debbie were perpetrating a hoax and got tired of keeping the charade up? And yet early on, Ken wrote that he thought someone else was pulling a hoax on them. Ken himself, writing in his book The Vertical Plane, even expressed some concern about some of the historical inaccuracies that appeared in the messages from Lucas. At one point, Ken learned that Lucas got Henry VIII's age wrong, and the simple fact that Lucas was using certain punctuation like commas and question marks at a time when such things weren't being used raised further alarm bells. Ken was also confused when Lucas told him the home he lived in on the property was made of red stone. The cottage Ken lived in wasn't. Yet, as he and Debbie continued to make renovations around the place, they discovered the foundation of a much older property that was indeed constructed of red sandstone. As time went on throughout the 18 months of messages between Lucas and Ken, there were some other facts Lucas reported that could be confirmed. At one point he mentioned that King Henry VIII was married to Catherine Parr, which would have placed the message being written right around the middle of the 15th century. In fact, in some ways, if you think about it, the historical facts that Lucas got wrong don't necessarily prove the entire story was made up either. Consider that Dodleston was in a rural area where news and information would have largely been spread by word of mouth. Undoubtedly, people living in the era would have learned and spread all sorts of inaccurate information. In some ways, it would have been more suspicious if every fact Lucas reported was true. But according to Ken, the reason some of the facts Lucas got wrong was even more sinister than that. That's because the mysterious 2109 was actually upset that Ken was trying to get to the bottom of Lucas's true identity, and began taking steps to hide the truth for some unknown reason. Ken said that one morning he found the BBC microcomputer had magically moved from the kitchen to the bathroom, upon which was a new message from 2109 warning Ken to stop asking so many questions 
because he was adversely affecting the timeline. Eventually, the Society for Psychical Research lost interest in the case. They told a local newspaper that they suspected the whole thing to be nothing but a hoax, most likely one perpetrated by Ken and Debbie. Although they didn't rule out the possibility there was some unknown third party committing the hoax as well. But if there was some mysterious other party involved, it's difficult to see how they could have done so. There were no signs of breaking and entering of the cottage. And the BBC Micro wasn't hooked up to any phone lines either. So it seems unlikely anyone from the outside world could have been feeding messages into the computer. Ken was so frustrated with the SPR's skepticism that he asked them to give him any records they had on his case. Strangely, the SPR responded that they didn't have any records of ever investigating Ken's case. Even stranger still, their investigator John Bucknell disappeared, and no one knew where he went. The SPR also claimed they had never employed a researcher by the name of David Welch, either. As far as the SPR was concerned, Ken's experiences never happened. Apparently, Ken's frustrations managed to reach the future, because a few days later, 2109 sent Ken a new message that actually included the name and phone number of someone he could reach out to who might help. The message instructed him to contact a ufologist named Gary M. Rowe, and actually provided the man's phone number. Rowe was intrigued by Ken's story, and he visited the cottage to see things for himself. He performed his own experiments, in which he wrote a series of questions that Ken and Debbie didn't see. Then he placed the questions in a sealed envelope that he laid on top of the BBC microcomputer. Then he waited for a response. He printed out the response from 2109 and didn't show it to Ken or Debbie either. We don't know exactly what was said between 2109 and Gary Rowe, but immediately after, Gary became even more secretive about whatever he learned, which frustrated Ken. Things grew heated and Gary ultimately left the cottage never to return. Although Rowe remained secretive about what he learned at the cottage for decades after, in 2017, Gary Rowe posted online that everything he witnessed at the cottage was absolutely real, and that the things he learned from 2109 would change history forever. Ken published his book about the incident in 1989. In 1996, Ken and Debbie took part in a BBC documentary about their experiences called Out of This World. For the most part, the couple has dropped out of the public view. Although Debbie will still occasionally post things online about the Dodleston messages to this day. Upon researching this subject, you'll find some sources that think the name Ken Webster may be a pseudonym, but that's unclear as well. So what can we make of all this? One possible explanation for everything that occurred in Dodleston is that the entire incident started out as a series of pranks. Ken Webster began playing on his girlfriend and houseguest, Nicola. Then it all just spiraled from there and became fodder for a supposedly true story to be told in a book. Consider that this would have been just a few years after other allegedly true paranormal stories like the Amityville Horror were being published and were raking in lots of cash. So it's easy to see why someone else might be inspired to come up with another wild story that they claim to be true. At the same time, to believe this was all a hoax, you then have to doubt the word of people like Peter Trinder, went on camera with the BBC to say that everything Ken described really happened, and that he fully believed the messages were written in Old English that would have been difficult, if not impossible, for a person in the modern era to fake. On the other hand, Professor Laura Wright says in the very same program that she highly doubts the message's authenticity because of the many grammatical errors, verb tense issues, and other sentence structure problems that made her believe the messages could not possibly have been written by someone living in the 16th century. 
At the same time, Ken Webster countered all this by saying, You have to keep in mind all those messages were being filtered and rewritten by 2109 to hide things they didn't want Ken to know. Although the BBC ran Ken's writings through some software that compared them to Lucas's messages and came up with the conclusion that there were many places where the two styles of writings matched, but Ken argued that the BBC cherry-picked which passages of writing to compare, and that the sample size of text they use is too small to come up with a conclusive match. In truth, if someone really was dedicated enough and did enough research, it would be possible for them to craft a credible hoax involving messages with someone who supposedly lived in the 16th century. But if there's anything that might prove that the Dodleston messages might be real, you need to actually look at the messages that came from 2109, not Lucas Wainman in 1546. That's because among the messages 2109 sent, he actually made a couple of predictions about some rather obscure things that came true. For one thing, 2109 gave the coordinates of a star that had not yet been discovered at the time Ken Webster wrote his book. But 2109 claimed that the star would be important to humanity's future. Well, as it turns out, a few years later a quasar was discovered at the same coordinates. Then there was one other unusual prediction 2109 made. He said that a mathematical problem known as Fermat's Theorem would finally be solved during Ken's lifetime. This was an obscure mathematics problem created by the French mathematician Pierre de Fermat in 1640 which dogged mathematicians for more than three centuries after. That is until 1998 when Princeton mathematics professor Andrew Wiles won a prize for solving the theorem. So it seems at least in these two instances, 2109 was telling the truth. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Anthony and Cot for signing up and helping to keep the lights on. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. In fact, I just released a brand new mini-episode at the same time as this recording. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Elsewhere, I encourage you to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Currently, we're on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else throughout the podcasting multiverse. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Besides that, I also encourage you to check us out on social media. Currently, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing, or even request show topics. In fact, it was one of my faithful listeners who suggested the show you just listened to. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.